Well, thank you for the welcome this morning. It's, it's good to see all of you. It's good to be here in green this morning. And uh, I want to just welcome everybody here today. I want to welcome everybody who's joining us online by simulcast, whether you're watching online this morning up at our Cincy campus, and no offense to all you guys and everybody that's watching online, but I saved the best for last. Good morning, Bainbridge. I want to start off this morning by telling you guys a story about a guy named Hobart. Hobart was born in the early 1900s in Delaware County, actually over in Downsville. And uh, things didn't start off too good for Hobart. When he was still a young guy, his mom died giving birth to his younger brother. And so shortly after that, his dad moved Hobart and his older brother, his older sister, and uh, his younger brother out to his uncle's farm in Bennington, New York, out by Buffalo. And uh, they, they stayed out there, and uh, his older brother and his older sister, when they finished grammar school, they went on to high school in Buffalo. But Hobart and his younger brother, when they finished grammar school, they went right to work. And uh, Hobart worked for his uncle on the farm there. He worked for a bunch of other farmers in the area, and he saved every penny that he made. He gave all of it to his grandmother. She saved it for him. And uh, eventually, Hobart, he, he grew into a young man, and he decided, you know what? I think I'd rather do something other than farming. And uh, so he decided he was going to go to work for the Pennsylvania Railroad. And so he went to his grandmother, he told his grandmother what he was planning to do. His grandmother gave him the money that he'd been saving, and he had enough to buy two things. He went out and he bought a, an automobile, and he bought himself a brand new suit. And he decided he would go back to Delaware County, he would say goodbye to his dad, and then he would go to Pennsylvania and he would start working for the railroad there. So he drove back out to this side of the state, he went to see his dad in Downsville, he had a nice visit with him. And then he turned his car south, and he started heading for Pennsylvania and the railroad. But for some reason, Hobart decided on his way out of town that he was going to stop at the post office. And I'm not sure why he stopped at the post office. He, he, maybe he was trying to find an address for somebody. Maybe he had an, a letter that he wanted to mail. But for whatever reason, Hobart stops at the post office, and it just so happened that a pretty young lady by the name of Lillian Williams was working behind the counter that day. So Hobart walked into the post office with the Pennsylvania Railroad on his mind, but he walked out of the post office with an entirely different destination in mind. And you can probably guess what happened. Hobart never made it to Pennsylvania. He decided that he was going to stick around for a little while and get to know this young lady. And eventually, they ended up getting married. They settled there in Downsville. And maybe you've already guessed this, maybe not, but Hobart's last name was Wilson. He's my great-grandfather. And Lillian Williams is my great-grandmother. And that's, that's a true story. And I love thinking about that story. I think about that story a lot actually, and I, I think about that story a lot for a couple of reasons. Number one, I, I just love that story. I, I think it's awesome. It's like something you would read in a book or, or watch in a movie. Uh, Hobart's future changed because of one decision that didn't seem all that consequential, right? But the other reason why I think about that story 
is because I am this close to not existing. Right? One decision away, and I don't exist. And on the one hand, that's, that's kind of funny. But on the other hand, that's really heavy. See, you and I, we're, we're products. We're the products of our own decisions and our own actions, for sure. But we're also the products of other people's decisions and other people's actions. And that's one of the reasons why I love history. My great-grandfather decided to stop at the post office one day. And there's a direct line between that decision and me standing here talking to you this morning. And there are really two ways that you can look at that. You can see history as an essentially random set of interactions between conscious beings with like no clear objective, no clear destination, and ultimately no purpose. Or you can see history as something more. You can see it as a story, a story that has an author that begins with purpose and is directed towards an ultimate outcome. Now, you can probably guess where I stand. History is a story, and it's his story. It's the story of God and human beings and the world that God created. And I'm going to make an educated guess that since you're here this morning, you're at least open to that idea. So over the next seven weeks here, we're going to be looking at the story of us and the God who made us. We're calling this series The Seven Seas of History, and that's actually an idea that we get from an organization called Answers in Genesis. If you're not familiar with Answers in Genesis, they're the organization that's behind the big Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum out in Kentucky. Um, if that doesn't mean anything to you, that's, that's totally fine. They're, just the, they're the organization that came up with this framework that we're going to be using in this series here, so I just want to give them credit for that. Um, you know what? I never grabbed a clicker this morning, guys. Can you advance the slides for me? So we'll go to the next one here. These seven C's that we're going to look at, they are seven different milestones in human history. So it starts with creation, and then we're going to trace this story through all of the twists and turns that it takes and uh, before ultimately looking at the hero who stands at the center of the human story. So we're going, to, we're going to watch humans go through corruption, catastrophe, and confusion before Christ and the cross pave the way for the consummation that this story is ultimately heading for. Thank you, Marcus. Sorry about that. So this is an epic story that spans the entire human timeline. But ultimately, this is more than a story about humanity. This is a story about us. It's a story about you, and it's a story about me, and it's a story about the God who made us. It's a story about the things that have shaped us and our role in a future that's yet to come. And it's a story about the God who's behind it all, who's, who's cosmic enough that he can author this entire grand story, and yet he's near enough to arrange a meeting in a post office that this guy in particular is pretty grateful for. So my hope for us as we go through this series is really, I have, I have two hopes. My first hope is that we'll gain a better understanding of ourselves and what it looks like to live in a way that honors God's plan in the human story. But my, my second hope is that we'll also gain a better understanding of the God who's behind it. So, you guys ready to dive into this here this morning? 
Awesome. All right, so if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, go ahead and pull that out and uh, join me in Genesis chapter 1 here this morning. Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab one of the chair Bibles that's near you here at Green or at our Cincy or Bainbridge campus there. There should be one close by. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that home with you. We would, we would love to give you that this morning. But join me in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be starting right in the very beginning, which you would think would be page 1, but it's actually page 3 in your chair Bibles here for whatever reason. Uh, but it's the beginning of the Bible, and it's the beginning of the human story. Here's, here's what it says, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, history traces what is essentially the human story, and it's a story that's about us, but here in these first verses in Genesis, we get introduced to the main character. Did you catch who it is? Yeah, it's, it's God. So history is a story about us, but I want to point out something essential here. It's a pretty important element to this story. The, the story that the Bible is telling is the story of us, but it's not exclusively about us. In fact, it's not even primarily about us. It's primarily about God, because ultimately history is his story. This is not a story about how great humans are. It's a story about how great God is. He's the one that gets the glory for this. But within that story, God has given humans a unique and prominent role, and that's what Genesis 1 is going to kind of bring to the surface here this morning. Now, the way that this opening story is told it's framed around seven different days. And within each day, God is going to take this empty, dark, formless world, and he's going to advance it one step closer to wholeness and fullness. And, and there's this pattern that's going to develop here. God is going to speak something. What he says is going to happen exactly the way that he says it. And then he's going to kind of take a step back. He's going to look at it, and he's going to say, yeah, that's, that's good. And in each one of those things is going to move this world towards wholeness. So, for example, here's the first day, Genesis 1-3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. So, the first day... God takes this empty, dark, and, and formless place, and he decides that light would be a good idea. So he says, let there be light, and the lights come on. And then he takes that light, and he gathers that all into its own thing, and he leaves the darkness all as its own thing, and he's got day, and he's got night. So he's, he's taken this, and he's added form. He's created day and night. And then he kind of takes a step back, and he assesses it, and he says, yeah, that's good. And that formula is going to repeat itself five more times. Okay, that formula is going to repeat over and over and over. And each step is going to move it closer to wholeness and farther and farther away from emptiness, darkness, and formlessness. So in the second day, God's going to create sky. 
And then on the third day, we get kind of a two-for-one special. The first thing that God does is he gathers all of the water together into oceans, and he creates dry ground. But then there's a transition that happens, and it's a transition in how God is creating. Because at this point now, God has the form that he wants. He's got day and he's got night. He's got earth and he's got sky. And he's got land and he has water. And so now he's going to transition from forming this creation to filling it. And so the the second thing that he does on the third day is he creates vegetation. And he starts filling the land with plants and trees. Day four, he creates the sun, moon, and stars to fill the sky and the sun to fill the day, the moon to fill the night. Day five, he creates fish to fill the ocean and then birds to fill the sky with living creatures. And then in day six, we get another two-for-one special. The first thing that God does on day six is he creates livestock and these animals that are going to live on the ground. But then another transition happens. It's just like day three. There's another transition that's going to happen here in how God is creating. Because now he's got the form that he wants. He's filled that form. And now his transition is going to be to caring for this creation. He's formed it. He's filled it. And now he's going to start sustaining it. And his very first step in that direction is where we come into the picture. This is where our story begins as human beings. So I'm going to look at verse 26 here, and we'll read through the end of Genesis 1 here, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all that he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. So the sixth day of creation is all about God caring for his creation. By the end of the day, he's, he's put in place food for all of the living creatures to sustain them. But the very first thing that God does to sustain this creation that he's made is he creates these special creatures that are going to be like his representatives in the world. And they're going to continue the work of, of forming and filling this creation that he's made. So he makes us. He makes humans. And the key phrase in this whole section is this phrase right here. If it'll, there we go. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Our story begins with that phrase right here. This phrase is at the core of your identity as a human being. You are made in the image of God. You are designed to be like him. 
Now, we see images everywhere. We see images on screens. We see them on billboards. We see them in magazines and in books. And uh, when we think about the word image, I think we tend to think about like pixels and pictures and paintings and things like that. The word that's actually here in Genesis 1, it's the Hebrew word salem. It means image, but when an ancient Israelite heard that word, they were probably thinking something more along the lines of a statue or a carved image. But the idea is really the same. Whether you're thinking painting, picture, statue, carved image, the idea is this is a visual representation of an idea. Okay, it's a, it's a visual representation of something. And God has made humans to be a visual representation of him to his creation. And there are three key elements that this idea is rooted in here in Genesis 1. The idea of the image of God here is rooted in three elements. Here's the first one, authority. Because human beings are made in the image of God, we were made to rule God's world. And I'll show you where this comes out. It shows up here in verse 26, where God says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals, right? It also shows up here in verse 28. God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So this idea of reigning shows up a couple of times here after God creates humans. And I don't know about you, but when I hear the word reign, uh, it makes me think of kings. And that's really the idea that's here. It's, it's almost like God has created humans to be like lowercase k kings who participate in and, and kind of help move forward God's reign as the capital K king, the uppercase K king. He's delegated some of his authority and that responsibility to us. And I think the natural question then is then, well, what does that look like? Right? If God wants us to reign over the animals, reign over his creation, what does that actually look like? And we get an illustration of what this looks like in the very next chapter in Genesis 2. So Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it. Gardening here is a picture of what it looks like for us as humans to use the authority that God has given to us. All right? So in, in gardening, you, you nurture, you cultivate, you help things to flourish. You bring life, right? Now, uh, if you're a gardener here this morning, that probably gets you really excited. But if you're like me and you try gardening and the only thing you're really successful at is growing weeds, it's probably a little bit discouraging for you. But gardening here is just the picture, right? That's, that's just a picture of what this looks like. Um, our calling is to help creation flourish. God has designed us specifically for this. Do you know human beings are the only species on the planet that takes a, uh, an intentional interest in helping other species flourish? We're the only ones. And probably my favorite example of this is the bald eagle. So right about the time that my great-grandfather Hobart became a grandfather in the 1960s, um, there were less than 500 mating pairs of bald eagles 
in the United States, in the lower 48 states of the United States. There were 480 pairs of nesting bald eagles, is what's estimated. Now, human beings definitely played a role in their decline, but it was also human beings living out the image of God in them that brought bald eagles back from the brink of extinction, thanks to cultivation or conservation efforts, rather, and uh, legislation like the Endangered Species Act. It's estimated that there are now more than 14,000 mating pairs of bald eagles in the United States. So I'm not a mathematician, but um, Google's got a handy little calculator. That is an increase of 2,700% over the last 60 years. So uh, that is humans living out their role as the image of God in creation. And creation cares a big part of that. But ultimately, this is about more than creation care. We also use the authority that God has given to us well when we help society flourish. When people raise strong families and they build strong communities, we're also living out the image of God when we work and we care for each other. So when a dad sits down and and reads the Bible to his kids and he points them to God, he's being an image of God. When a mom does a load of laundry and and, uh, helps her kids with with their homework, she's being an image of God. When a construction worker builds a home or a road or a factory worker helps produce a forklift or a teacher helps a student learn or an artist creates something beautiful or a police officer writes a speeding ticket, they're being an image of God. We're doing what God created us to do when we move creation towards wholeness, towards fullness, when we help it flourish and we're moving it away from formlessness, emptiness, and darkness. That's what it looks like for us to use the authority that God has given to us as his image and reign over his creation. But I think there's also an issue that this raises. Because when we look back over human history, humans haven't exactly done a stellar job of using that authority well. I think in some cases you can make a pretty good case that we've actually done more to move creation backwards, closer to darkness and and formlessness and emptiness than we have to move it towards uh, form and fullness. So while authority is an element of the image of God, there's, there's a sense here in Genesis 1 that it's not yet complete. There's something about this element that's missing. It's pointing us to something. And I want you to hang on to that thought for a minute. I'm going to leave it there for now. We're going to kind of circle back to that in a minute. But it's pointing to something. For now, I want to look at, at one of the other elements that the, the image of God is rooted in here, and it's, it's this. It's dignity. Dignity. So we've got authority as part of the image of God, and now dignity. Because humans are made in the image of God, every human has value and worth. The image of God sets humans apart from every other part of creation. I want to show you verse 27 here in Genesis 1. I think this is kind of where this comes out. Um, You can't really see it in this format too well, but this is actually laid out like a poem. You've got one idea that repeats itself 
over three lines here. It's, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's the same idea. It's repeated three different ways over three different lines here. And the reason why it's laid out that way is because this is actually a song. All right, this is, this is a song here in Genesis 1. And there's a sense, because this is here, that, that the creation of human beings is really God's master stroke in creation. This, this is his masterpiece. This is where creation kind of reaches its crescendo. That's why this song is here. It's celebrating the creation of humanity. But I think sometimes it's easy for us to kind of look at humanity as a whole and think to ourselves, really? Like, that's the crescendo? But here's the thing. I couldn't, I couldn't find um, actual like, statistics on here, but it, it, it makes sense to me that in the city of Paris in France, they probably have dozens of structure fires every year. They might even have hundreds of structure fires every year. But back in 2019, there was a structure fire in Paris that got international attention. The, the fire started a little after 6 p.m., and firefighters showed up at the scene very soon after, and they battled that fire all night long. By the time they got the, the fire under control, most of the main roof of that structure had collapsed, and the upper walls of it had been severely damaged. One part of the structure had actually collapsed entirely. And the next morning... Uh, media, news media from all around the world gathered to hear news about this building that had burned in Paris in the structure fire. And the president of France actually got up in front of the news media there and he delivered news about this building with tears in his eyes. And he launched a fundraiser that within one week received pledges from all over the world for more than $1 billion to restore this building. Now, Structure fires are certainly tragic, but nobody died in this fire. And the damage was extensive, but the building wasn't a total loss. So what was the big deal? Like, why was the French president reduced to tears over this building that caught on fire? Why did reporters come from all over the globe? Why did people pledge more than $1 billion to restore this building that was in a structure fire? because it wasn't an ordinary building. The building that was in that structure fire was the cathedral at Notre Dame. And that, that building is one of the masterpieces of humanity. It's, it's a masterpiece of art and architecture. And um, it's one of humanity's crowning achievements. It's, it's priceless. So the reaction to that fire, as incredible as it was, was right in line with the dignity that's inherent in that building. And it would be easy for me to say at this point that because humans are made in the image of God, that humans are more valuable than the cathedral at Notre Dame. Right? But that's, that's not a statement that means a whole lot to us. It just kind of bounces off of us without making much of an impact. I mean, the truth is, you could stack one human being up against 100,000 Notre Dames, and you're still not in the ballpark. But here's what I'm going to say instead. Even after Notre Dame was almost destroyed in a fire, its dignity wasn't. It still was priceless. 
it still represented the best that humanity had to offer. The dignity that was associated with its image wasn't tarnished because it was in a fire. And the image of God in humanity is, is just like that. Like You don't have to look very far back through human history to see some pretty messed up people. People are broken, right? Most of you know some people that are, that are kind of messed up. You know me, so you know at least one. You probably feel some of that brokenness yourself. And that's the issue with this element too, because even though there's inherent value and dignity in every person because of the image of God, we devalue it, we ignore it, and we deface it. But that hasn't erased the dignity that's inherent in it. Instead, the dignity in this is, is pointing us forward to something. This element, too, is also begging for completion somewhere in the human storyline. It's, it's looking for restoration, just like the cathedral at Notre Dame. And that brings us to the third core element that the image of God is rooted in here. Community. Community. So we've got authority, dignity, and community. Those are the three elements that the image of God is rooted in here in Genesis 1. But because human beings are made in the image of God, we were made for relationships. And there's two ways that this plays out. We were made for relationships with each other, and we were made for relationships with God. If we look at Genesis 1.27 here again, uh, we can see kind of where this, where this comes out. I think it's, it's pretty natural for us to assume. It's, it's a, a normal assumption that we can make that God created every living creature in his creation, male and female, right? That's a, that's a natural assumption. We know that God created animals, for example, with male and female versions, but only humans are specifically, we're only told that humans specifically were made male and female by God. They're the only ones where this is specified in Genesis 1. And the reason why it's specified there is, is to make this point. There's something about relationships that makes the image of God more clear. We were designed for relationships. We're kind of like Legos, right? So even a Lego by itself is inherently Lego. Like there, everything about that Lego is Lego. But there's something about Legos gathered into a set that is more in, like, it's, it's more definitively Lego than a Lego by itself. They give a clearer picture of what Legos are designed to be when they're in community. See, community has a magnifying effect. And they magnify the image of God when we're in relationships. And that's by design. Right? God exists in a perfect community. He exists in a community of Father, Son, and Spirit. And we reflect that image when we gather into community as well. So humans are created with a unique capacity for relationships with each other. But we're also created with a unique capacity for relationship with God. There's a sense in Genesis 1 that, that God creates humans specifically for relationship with him. God doesn't interact with the other creatures the way that he interacts with human beings. And I want to show you two verses kind of side by side here that bring this, um, this difference out. 
So here's the first one. This is Genesis 1.22, and I'm going to show you it in the, the NIV here because the, the distinction's a little bit clearer. But this is when God blesses the animals. He's blessing the fish, and he's blessing the birds and the livestock here. It says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Now, here's what he says. Here's what happens when he blesses humans. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. So, same blessing, but it's delivered a slightly different way. When God blesses the animals, he just pronounces blessing on them. But when God blesses humans, he blesses them face to face. He gives them his blessing face to face. It's an act of relationship. God created humans specifically for a relationship with him. And there's another way that this comes out, and it's in the way that God created humans. Everything else in God created, he, everything else that God created, he just speaks into existence. He wanted light, he says, let there be light, and there was light. He wanted fish, he said, let there be fish, and there were fish. But when it comes to humans, God's, God does something a little bit more intentional, and that comes out in Genesis 2. This is how he formed the first person. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man became a living being. There's a level of intimacy with this particular act of creation that's not present in any of the other acts of creation that God does. It's, it's personal, and it's intentional. God makes human beings in his image because his intent for us is for us to live in relationship with him. But here again, there's a disconnect from the ideal that that points to and the reality that we live in. Because here's the thing, like you and I are designed for relationships, but there is almost nothing harder for us than community. You feel that? Like, I think all of us probably know of relationships that we have that are lacking or that are broken. And, and how about your relationship with God? Does it feel this intimate and personal and intentional all the time? I think for most of us, probably not, right? So there's a gap here between what this is pointing to and the reality that we live in here. So this element too is begging for completion in something. It's pointing us to something just like the other two. And what I want to draw our attention to and kind of, kind of land on here this morning is that all three of these things that the image of God is rooted in, authority, dignity, and community, they are all pointing us to the person who stands at the center of the human story, Jesus. In Jesus, we see somebody who lives out the image of God perfectly. He uses his authority to heal diseases, right? Forgive sins, bring people back from the dead. He recognizes the inherent value and dignity in everybody he encounters, from, from wealthy rulers to the outcasts in society, people like tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners that, that nobody else would associate with. He honored them. And he lives in perfect community with God and with humans. He honors God as his father and he honors humans as his friends. And Colossians 1 
says this about Jesus. It says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Jesus is the perfect image of God, which means that he brings the image of God to its completion. And the image of God in you is brought to its completion through Jesus. He's the completion that it's looking for. This is an idea that the Apostle Paul kind of keys in on in the New Testament. He, he says that it's almost like human beings are living with a veil over our faces, and that kind of messes with our ability to live out the image of God. And then he says this, but whenever somebody turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him, makes us more and more like Jesus as we are changed into his glorious image. So here's the idea. Because Jesus is the perfect image of God, you live out your calling as the image of God when you look more like him. Right? That's your purpose. That's who you were made to be, made to be. So that means that you are most human when you are most like Jesus. You are closest to what God has called you to be and made you to be when you are following Jesus. Now, the $10 theological word for that is sanctification. But all that really means is that you are taking steps to follow Jesus and become more and more like him. And as you do that, you are stepping farther and farther into your purpose as a human being. And the cool thing about that is that that generally starts to kind of flow into the world around you as you do that. It flows into your relationships and it flows into how you use your influence and your authority. You begin to naturally take steps that move the world around you closer to form and fullness and wholeness and farther away from darkness and emptiness and formlessness. And you start to become that too. You start to become more whole. And I think this is also true for us as a church. And I think that's what's really exciting about this. Because community has that magnification trait when it comes to the image of God. When we're committed to following Jesus and taking steps of obedience, then we're truly living as the image of God and we're moving our families and we're moving our communities closer to form and fullness and wholeness. Because in some sense, our families and our communities and the people around us, they're the products of their own decisions and actions, sure, but they're also the products of our decisions and our actions so imagine what they could be if we are fully following Jesus and fully stepping into our purpose as human beings and living as the image of God in the communities where he's placed us. Our story as humans begins with this idea. We are made in the image of God. That is who you were designed to be, the image of God. But where your story really begins and where you really start to, to step into the human story is when you begin to follow Jesus 
and take steps to become more like him. The more you become like him, the more truly human you become. Would you bow with me this morning? Father, I thank you that you are a God who is, who is big enough and, and powerful enough and, and cosmic enough that, that you can author this entire grand human story. And yet, as big as you are and as powerful as you are, you're near enough to be involved in our daily lives and our, our daily actions and our daily choices. God, I thank you for, for taking my great-grandfather to that post office that day and uh, setting in motion a, a series of events that ultimately uh, is, is why I'm here. I thank you for that. And God, I thank you for this calling that, that you have put in each of our lives to live as your image in your creation. And I, w- I just want to ask this morning that you would give each of us a clear vision of what it looks like for us to live that out in, in the, the context where you have placed us. Help us to be your image, pointing your creation to you and, and leading it towards fullness and flourishing. God, we recognize that that's what you've called us to do and that's, that's what we want to do. Father, I pray just for the, the person who is here and, and wondering, how do I use the authority that you have given to me? God, would you give them a picture of how Jesus used that authority? Um, how he used it to bring fullness and healing and, and flourishing to the people around him. Father, I also just want to pray for the, the person who's here this morning and they're struggling with their worth and their value as a human being. They don't feel as though they are lovable. God, would you show them that not only are they loved, but they are valued and they are treasured because they are made in your image. And not only can you restore that image in them, but you want to restore that image in them. And Father, I pray for those who are, in, who are experiencing broken relationships today. Would you bring them to a place where they are living in a whole and healthy community that reflects your image. Father, we thank you that that you have made us in your image to help care for your creation and help care for each other. We ask that you help us to do this in your name. Amen.